Welcome to a Revolution to Lead podcast. This is a podcast all about living the revolutionary life that Jesus began and opened for all humanity 2,000 years ago. In this podcast, we're going to talk about things that impact our everyday life to show that Jesus is not about one day when, but he's here with us right now to make our lives heaven on earth. This episode is going to be a little bit different. This is a conversation between myself and Rabbi Stephen Silberman of Ahava Hasid Synagogue in Mobile, Alabama. This is a two-part conversation, so two separate conversations that I've blended into one episode. There'll be differences in between our beliefs, however, this will not be a debate. This will simply be an interview as I ask him questions, and then he asks me some, and I respond, just so we have a mutual understanding of the framework that we're talking through. So if you're looking for a debate, this is not your episode. However, if you want to deeper understand God's people and the Old Testament, there are things that followers of Jesus can pick up to help them understand God's people in today's world and in the culture of the Old Testament. So I hope you enjoy. Then what's your class that you're in right now? And what's the paper that you're working on? Um, so I'm just using this. Right now I'm working, I'm actually on a kind of in-between classes right now. And I'm actually, work, I've been working on a book for a while. Just, I've always loved writing. And then I actually get to work in the book world. So working on a book and really this last chapter is on the Messiah. And mm-hmm. I've kind of used mainly for this entire thing. It's been on the ultimate goal. So reframing even the New Testament and just the ultimate goal that um, the new, it's, the ultimate goal isn't heaven, it's new creation. And it's the new heavens and new earth. That's not, so going to heaven one day isn't the ultimate goal. And really, I just wanted to make sure what I'm saying about the Messiah and what the Tanakh is saying about the Messiah is what for centuries and centuries rabbinical thought has been saying. Um, okay, so you're going to have to back up a little bit. Okay. And you're going to have to remember that when people say what the Tanakh says, that's an extreme oversimplification. Right. The Tanakh is a collection of 39 different books. Right. Hebrew scripture. So, and and much of the Tanakh doesn't talk about the Messiah. Correct. At least so, not the way the word that you use the word Messiah yes, refers it's to. Not, yes. Okay. So that's so, kind of where, so where I framed it is God restoring the world. As in God bringing back the perfect connection between God and humanity. And so this is, but okay. Then you see, uh, okay. So respectfully, you're you're still looking at this from a post-Hanafic eye, and you're looking at it from through a Christian lens. Correct. Okay, so, so that's, if if you want a Jewish frame, I want to ask you questions. So yes, please give me that because okay. I'm here to ask questions today. <laughs> okay. So, um, you have to start with the question: What does the word Messiah mean? And the word Messiah means. Anointed. anointed one. Good. So the next question is, 
in the ancient days in Israelite life, which is addressed by the Tanakh, who was a Messiah? And the answer is a priest, a prophet, prophet and a king. So what does, am I shouting? Sorry. I no, you're shouting. good. Okay. No, you're fine. So what do a priest and a prophet and a king have in common? In one way or another, they're all serving the nation. They're all serving the community. Right. The Kohen is serving, the priest is serving the community in a worship method. Right. Which maintains the connection between the individual, the nation, and God. The king is serving the nation in a military and political and national and administrative role, or a series of roles, which means to protect the nation. The prophet is the voice box of God, and in many contexts, the prophet is a counterweight to a king. Right. Especially if the king is Ahab. immoral or <laughs> Ahab or, you know, running a foul, uh, or, you know, all those guys. Menashe <clears throat> um, <clears throat> too, right? Right. So, um, Jeroboam. So, a lot of kings. Um, so, priest, prophet, king are all serving the nation and in a way they're maintaining safety and stability here in this world. Right. So being a Mashiach, being a, a, an anointed one, is this worldly. Okay. Now, if you jump a little bit, and you want to look at, I think, three books. You want to look at Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Malachi. You've got three very different views of Messiahship. Isaiah's view is the lion will lie down with the lamb. The little child will take care of animals and some animals are predatory and some animals are prey P-R-E-Y and at the right time God is going to bring forth such a sense of justice and peace that animals along with people will cooperate Do I really think that Isaiah thought that if Isaiah carried a lamb in and put it in a zoo next to a wolf or a lion, the wolf or lion would eat turnip grains? No. I think Isaiah would have been the first one to say, if I put a lion next to a, a lamb, the lion's going to eat the lamb. <clears throat> it's poetry. Right. So the message is, <clears throat> how do you convey to people that a hopefully new world experience is going to emerge in enormous colossal terms. And he uses poetry and imagery to convey a message. Right. Does that mean it's real? It, it's fervent. It's a hope. Uh, it might even be prayerful. Is it describing an empirical reality? No, I don't think so. That's Isaiah. Now, you jump to Ezekiel, and Ezekiel 
talks about. So, you, just to clarify. Yeah. So you're saying that an empirical reality. As, so you're saying it. It's not literal. I don't think as it's literal. in at no point. I don't think it's that, literal. Yeah. Okay. I think it's got to be taken symbolically and metaphorically and okay. Which yeah, at, at so, a larger scale, I kind of saw that, but I was. Got to be. It's got to be. Yeah. So then we have Ezekiel, and Ezekiel has this vision in, you know, chapters 35 through 38, 39, and 40 <clears throat> about the Valley of the Dry Bones. Right. Okay. Now, remember, Ezekiel is interacting with the people of Israel, having just had a catastrophic defeat. The destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the killing of tens of thousands or more, the depredation en masse to Babylonia, people being forced to live outside of the sacred land within a pagan world. Do you, do you understand the enormity of what Ezekiel is dealing with? And he's living yes. outside there with them. Yes, okay? he's in Babylon. He's in Babylon. <laughs> so when he says, I see a valley of dry bones, I see an enormous cemetery, and these bones are going to start getting up and standing around and walking along and living. And he says, God, what am I supposed to do? And God says, prophesy each stage of bones coming together, and then later the muscles and the flesh covering the bones, and then, you know, are they going to live? God, you tell me. Well, you have to prophesy that a breath is going to come and reanimate these dead people. So, Ezekiel is continually asking God, God, what are you going to do for these people in this cemetery? Mm -hmm. And God keeps saying, Ezekiel, what are you going to do? You understand? So, a renewal of a community that's been decimated by war and has absolutely no hope of reestablishing itself has to come from a shared message of God and people. So, that's, that's Messiahship during the time of Ezekiel which is different than the time of Isaiah, who was, you know, 110, 20, 30 years before, um, dealing with his own experiences of Assyria. You know, you've got to look at the history, you know, what are the people dealing with? And then you look at Malachi, and Malachi is on the tail end, right? Right. In Malachi chapter 3, what's Malachi talking about? Malachi says in chapter 3, um, you've got to look at the book, so... I mean, I've, see, did you, did you study Malachi? Yes. Ah, good. So, what, what's important, I think, is that um, Malachi is the last prophet in Hebrew Scripture. Prophecy ends with Malachi. There's no more prophecy for that. The Bible's closed. Malachi is the, the last one. So Malachi says, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the coming of the awesome day of God. And Elijah shall reconcile parents with children and children with their parents. So when I come, I don't destroy the world. Okay. Which means that the essential ingredient from Malachi's point of view is that parents and children need to be reconciled. Parents and children need to be close. Messianic redemption for Amalekai is in terms of the family unit. 
Messianic redemption towards Malachi in terms of the family unit. Isaiah, at the very beginning of called classical prophetic literature, that's Hebrew terminology, classical prophetic literature, is concerned with how do you deal with the ten northern tribes that are separated and separating from the two southern tribes, and they're struggling with Assyria and world domination. And Isaiah says, you know what? Someday the world is going to be so much better that even animals that eat each other are going to stop and they're going to eat straw together, and people will be safe. What a wonderful vision and hope. Ezekiel says, as I just laid it out, in my, my opinion, that people and God have to work together to reestablish a community that's been decimated by war. Malachi is saying the family as a unit has to improve itself in order to fulfill messianic redemption. One family at a time, the next family, the next family, the next family. Get parents to talk to each other and turn their hearts to each other. And that's going to spread from family to family, to neighborhood, to community, to across the country, and eventually, hopefully, beyond. Right. So, each of these three famous Hebrew prophets is looking at a need which he sees as essential, and he associates these essential needs with redemption and, 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 and future safety. So when you ask me what does the Tanakh say about messiahship, the answer is there are multiple versions of messiahship. In the original narrow sense, messiahship means king, priest, prophet, protection of the community for the sake of the community and, and its ongoing daily life. When you jump to the literary prophets of Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Malachi, you're looking at messiahship in symbolic ways, or maybe even esoteric ways, or maybe supernatural ways, depends on which terminologies you want to employ. Am I making sense? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, so that's Tanakh. So, um, what was and your then, question? <laughs> no, you're right on it. So, okay. just what is the, we're just talking about Messiah and the Tanakh, just the different, so can we, so can we jump back sure. a little bit? Sure. So let's go Torah. Okay. So let's start with Genesis 3.15. I will send uh, a descendant in I will put in enmity between you and Eve. Pretty much, it just, her descendant will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Okay. So what does that do with Messiah? My question is, does it? No. I mean, well, I, I shouldn't say that. But why, why would you see that as being related to Messiah? more of the hope of what God is going to do with the world. So, I guess it starts with, how do you see the fall of Adam and Eve? As in, this, let's just go this whole story. Oh, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Okay, yeah, God okay, told, yeah okay, sorry. I see what you're saying. Okay, okay. I'm jumping ahead. I'm trying to pull okay, that. Okay, got it. There are Jewish people who believe li literally in Adam and Eve and 
it was a couple, uh, you know, a, a husband and wife, and there was a snake, and then they ended up leaving the garden, and that was it. And uh, there are others who believe in a different way. I don't believe that literally there was a couple named Adam and Eve. Right. Okay. Uh, I think that this is a sacred text. I don't use the word story because people think story is three little pigs. Right. It's a sacred text that talks about what God wants and expects for humanity. And the goal of humanity was to live in a garden. So living in a garden means you've got responsibilities. Right. You're living in an environment that is beautiful and has been gifted to you, but you have responsibility. And the one responsibility was to follow a rule. And the rule was don't eat from that tree. So then, in some way, a message came forth and people had the choice to either follow the rule or to not follow the rule. Right. And they chose to break the rule. So it's a metaphor, it's a symbolic structure, it's a snake, it's what I don't believe there's a walking walking around snake that's talking on its hind legs. I don't believe that. So the text is saying what happens to a nearly perfect world that's been given to you when you break the single rule? And the answer is, you have consequences. But the major issue is that when God spoke to Adam and asked, what did you do? The first thing Adam did was shift responsibility to Eve. And when God speaks to Eve, the first thing that Eve does is shift responsibility to the serpent, which means that they refuse to accept responsibility for their own choices, for breaking a rule. That is the classic Jewish understanding of the Garden of Eden, that an individual or a couple, depends on how you want to look at the text, excuse individual, an individual failed to accept responsibility and shifted blame to somebody else. And if that's the case, sorry, you don't deserve to live here. Right. Okay? That's Jewish tradition, and that's how I understand it. So, if you're asking, to what extent does this in some way be a, a doorway to something greater, the answer is, that's not how I view it. Okay, so I guess let's start with the basic question. What is the serpent? Who is it? What is it? I mean, Who is it symbol? Like, so I'm agreeing with you. It okay. is a text. It's a text. I don't think there was Adam and Eve, literally. So we can... Okay. Um, I mean, well, I mean there, are, there are Jewish people who say literally it was a man and a woman. Like, okay, fine. So, I mean, yeah, no, they're yeah. on strong ground. There's same conversation in Christian. Exactly. So, um, okay. So, um, I don't think that the serpent was actually a serpent walking around talking. Right. Standing on his hind legs. I think the serpent is there as a literary device. Right. And the purpose of the serpent is to... engage Eve. So, Eve has been told, don't eat of this fruit, and don't share with your 
husband, your man. So Eve takes this fruit and she eats it. And then she shares it with her man. How does she get to that decision? She gets that decision by some external element. Okay. Now, what does that mean? It's a very powerful message because nearly everybody on the planet knows this story. Even if they haven't read it, they know about the story. Right. So it's a way of getting the storyline across to the reader or the listener that a woman was commanded to not eat something, she ate something, she broke the rule, and she shared it with somebody she wasn't supposed to. She violated the rule. So I think the serpent is the mechanism, the literary device by which <laughs> she breaks the rule and the whole drama is now available to us. So my question to you is, have you ever broken a rule? Yes. So what is it that causes you to break a rule? You don't have to answer that question. Just right. mull it over your head. Okay? The answer is depending upon the rule, lots of things. Right. Maybe it's your own personal desire. Maybe it's a buddy. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a, a contest. Maybe it's a question. Maybe it's somebody you don't get along with. Maybe it's a competition. Who knows why, okay? Maybe it's a, just a happenstance weak moment. Maybe it's an issue of real deep thought. I think this rule is unjust. I'm going to break it for uh, a specific goal and reason and rationale. There are lots of reasons we break rules. So what's interesting is that the, the Torah, five books, opens with this scene. The right. Torah doesn't open with God's choosing to speak to Abram, who later becomes Abraham as the first Jew. Right. This is the biggest Jewish Hebrew document there is. And God doesn't start off talking to Abram or Abraham or Moses. God talks to a couple that God has placed in a garden, whom we would call representing all humanity. Right. And the name, or the word, really is the word, the word Adam means a human. Adama means earth, or ground, or land. So, as soon as you hear Adam, you know that he was crafted from the soil of the earth. Right. Eve is Chava, which means life. So, you need substance, which is the Adam, and you need Chava, which is the life presence or vitality, you might say, for this couple to generate the human population. If you only have substance, physical matter and form, cells, but you don't have an animating life force, then you're not going to have a population. If you have right. a life force, but you don't have cells and tissues and muscles and bones and DNA, then you're not going to have a living population. You need both. So the elements or the motifs or the constituent parts of early Genesis are designed here to capture your attention. Because everybody's going to say, whoa, a man from Earth and a woman is life force 
they made populations happen. Wow. Right. And that's that's what's going on here. Right. So because so we would say so is the serpent pretty much the I guess I guess we can jump back. Let's get to this concept and then we'll move forward. <clears throat> is this serpent the thing that causes humanity to continue to go in the downward spiral that we see resulting in God sending Israel into exile? Is this serpent the representation of sin, of humanity, rejecting God? Just is this serpent the force that causes all humanity to reject God or as in at least entices them because then we see in the next story um, with Cain and Abel be careful sin is crouching at your door he's waiting to devour you so we get these two stories back to back of a animal this animal that causes now two generations of humanity to mess up. Okay, I'm not comfortable saying that. I mean, that I, to be honest, I, I have a feeling that's probably emerging from a Christian cultural point of view. Mm -hmm. I don't think you're going to hear that from a Jewish point of view. Right. The serpent is the character or a feature or maybe an actual animal in the encounter between Adam and Eve. But that's all. Um, Please don't say that within Jewish tradition the serpent continues on and on and on into the future. Because no, I don't. Uh, I don't buy it. I, I would. I would okay. reject that. Cool. I reject I'll, that again. Why yeah. I'm here? Right, right, right. <laughs> I reject that. Why I'm here? But but now I'm asking you a different question. So how do I say this? Um, I hope you're not planning on quoting me in a book. Just. As, as, as talking or narrating or whatever. No, it's because I'm, I'm just taking this for a podcast, and okay. that's what this is. And then okay. this is for me to go okay. back, listen okay. to. Okay. The craft, the actual perspective. Okay. Because if if you want to look at specific Jewish sources about certain topics or certain specific verses, you would have to do that. I'm not sure if I have time to do that all right now. Uh, you know, but I mean, there are, there are literally dozens, hundreds of right. sources, most of them obviously in Hebrew. Um, so, um, if you're, you said you're writing a book. Right. So, if you're writing a book, then you need to have yes, quotations so <laughs> and references yes. and yes. sources. And, well, it depends on what kind of a book you're writing. If you're writing a uh, you know, a book for a novel for fun, then you don't really need any sources. Right. Yeah, no, this is a... But if you're... Is it going to be an academic book? Not necessarily, but it is a non-fiction book. Okay. So, because you... You, you, um, you would so need... So it will have the sources. You, so, you, you know... Have to, you, you'd have to research, you know, the treatment of the serpent in uh, biblical literature. And you have to look at different sources, and so, you know, um, you know, JBL, the Journal of Biblical Literature, or um, you know, 
J-A-S-O-R, the Journal of the Something Schools of Oriental Research. I'm blanking what the A stands for. Maybe it's the archives. J-A-S-O-R. Uh, J-B-L. J-Q-R, a Jewish Quarterly Review. Um, I don't remember what else, where you would start with your sources. Um, J-B-L, J-Q-R, J-S-O-R. Um, maybe H-U-C-A, which is Hebrew Union College Annual. Annual, that's the name of the, uh, it, it comes up to journal, comes out every, every year. Right. And the H-U-C-A, which goes back, gosh, it go back, maybe it's 100 years, maybe more, is a scholarly compendium of articles. Awesome. So, I mean, you, you know, that's right. That was my next question of what yeah. sources, because I have seen a couple, but. <clears throat> so, yeah, I, I wanted to know what the kind of had to, because I have Christians telling me these sources, so I needed <laughs> sources from you, and then also I got some from Rabbi Edwards as well. Good. Okay, good. Good. So, therefore, what. So, when. God, why does God tell. So, if this serpent is not the driving force that we would call the Satan, the opposer, the accuser. Right. Why does God tell Eve, or what is God saying to Eve, Adam Adam and Eve, when he says, a descendant of Eve, will, when he's talking to the serpent, cursed are you above all livestock. All your days you'll crawl on your belly on the dust of the earth. And then I'll put enmity in between you and the woman. Her descendant will crush your head and you will strike his heel. If you ask my brother-in-law, who's now in his late 50s, when he was 15, why do you like steaks? I don't know what he would tell me, but I know my wife told me that her baby brother had steaks in glass aquariums in the house. If you ask me about steaks, I'd say, ooh, gross, I don't like steaks. Do you like snakes? No. Okay. Lots of people don't like snakes. Herpetologists, those who study reptiles, like snakes. Sometimes little kids come home from, from traipsing in the woods and they have a snake and mommy goes, eek, throw the thing away, get rid of it. <laughs> Husband, get the shovel, smash its head. Okay. I don't think people like snakes. I think most people don't like snakes. Right. They're gross. They're weird. They slither. They, they locomote in a way that's very different than everything else. Doggies and caddies and kitties and chickens and, you know, all the animals in the world walk around on legs. Their legs look different than ours, but they walk around. Elephants walk around, okay? Then you have these weird, disgusting things that don't have legs. And they walk, and they, and they don't walk, they slide. They're weird looking. Um, and I think we just don't like snakes. And I think this little phrase here is a description that animals of a certain nature and people are going to knock it along with each other. So what do you say, kind of like how Isaiah says the lion and the lamb will lie down together and eat straw. Eat is straw. this more of just saying from now on there will be 
rivalry and strife between creation and humanity. Possibly. Okay. It could be descriptive. It could be. That, you know, that's one way of looking at it. That's one way of looking at it. So, okay. Cool. So you would say that's fair? Yes. If that's you fair. took that, that's not taking that out of context. I would think that's anyway. a very, that, I would think that's fair. Okay. That's just me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So now let's kind of continue on. We can go to, I guess, what's the ultimate hope? As in, what is God going to do in the world? Like, will we, like, pretty much, is there going to be an end? Is there going to be a definitive end when God comes and intervenes, eradicates all sin, and we live in peace with Israel, Israel being the, I guess, the center of world order, and we walk into a legit like just physical Jerusalem or is it going to be God come so yeah we can start there is this going to be a literal reign of Jeru Israel over the rest of the world with a human leading it leading this nation or will God personally just or is that just a way of saying God's going to restore the world and eradicate all so yeah, let's say, is it going to be more physical with a human? Or is it going to be more cosmic with God eradicating all sin, all death, and we live forever in the new creation as follow if we're God-fearing? Okay, number one, I can't answer that. Okay. Um, number two, there are lots of Jews who have very different opinions. Correct. Some Jews might believe that there's going to be some human leader who is capable of guiding the world or leading the world into ultimate justice and peace and righteousness and blessing and honor and safety. Um, other Jews say, no, it's all metaphorical and symbolic and allegory and the messages are to try to build a better world, but it has to be done by cooperation with people of different backgrounds. Um, that second perspective is called the Messianic Era, the Messianic Age. Right. And um, Jewish writers in the starting in the early 1800s. Um, began writing about an idea that people are going to work together to build a world of safety and justice and harmony and peace and righteousness and honor for all. Um, Abraham Geiger, G-E-I-G-E-R, is one of the biggies who writes that in the early 1800s. The Messianic Age, the Messianic Era. He might have used the term epic, E-P-O-C-H, I can't remember. So, but he's one of the biggies. So you'd have to look for, you know, Abraham Geiger and, and Messianism. Um, and many people found that to be very uplifting and very inspirational that people of all backgrounds, Jewish and non-Jewish backgrounds, would work together to make the world better. That's very inspirational. That's right. uplifting. And it also um, demystifies messianism. Right. Um, 
if you say that God is going to send one man and he's going to end up in, you know, Oklahoma City or Paris or Moscow or Jerusalem and make the whole world safe and, and, and just and righteous and, and free of war, people might say, oh, come on, really? That just sounds way too far-fetched. Right. So Geiger's approach, and, and there are others who ride along with him, that people are going to work together is a very uh, inspirational message because it lifts up the individual and people working together for the sake of making the world better. That's very inspirational. That's moving. That's uplifting. Um, so, um, God hasn't called me and said, Stephen, let me tell you what's going to happen. Right. I haven't gotten a phone call. Yeah, if I get a phone call, I'll say, thanks. What am I supposed to do? You know, God will probably say, figure it out. Because God gave me this. And God gave me this. So how do I use my mind and my spirit and my heart to take hold of the wisdom of my people and my ancestors, which comes from God, to make the world better? And I have a few ideas. Um, I'm supposed to be respectful of people every day of my life. I'm supposed to try to make, make the world a better place was to share uh, materially and charitably of my possessions. This was to share of my concern and my hope and my emotions and my feelings and my desire to work together with people and, and humanity and love and respect. I mean, I'm supposed to raise my children with my wife and a certain way to go out into the world and be honorable, decent, righteous people. And these are the things I'm supposed to do. Um, can I fix the world all by myself? No. Can I try? Yeah, I can try. My little part. Right. Um, but when you say new creation, I tend to think that you're still viewing this question of yours through Christian eyes. Right. So as long as you understand that, Terrific. That's fine. I mean, this yes. is your tradition. It's your, it's your faith. It's your perspective. You've grown up in it. You've studied it. You're at the University of Mobile, right? Actually, I'm online at Oral Roberts University. Okay, so you're studying within a Christian framework, and so it makes sense that this is your approach. Um, but please understand that not the whole world is Christian. Correct. Again, which is why I'm here. Cool. I cool. I needed this. Cool. So. So now that we kind of have that, when you read, just we can take everything now. Just uh, this can be hard. So this is very just very broad. Your okay. answer doesn't have to be very specific here. But when you look at the generations from Moses to now mm -hmm. of Jewish literature, what is the ultimate hope of what God is going to do? Like. So I know we kind of already said that, but just... Ultimately, what God's going to do. Like, pretty much, where's the world going? Where's the world going? As in, like... Like, what's what is the, the point? What? Yeah, what's the point? What's the point? What's the point? Okay, the point is that... My grandfather left Odessa in... 1910 and it took between six months and a year for him to walk 
across Odessa to get to Belgium to get into a boat to come to the United States. He ended up in Pittsburgh. And then, at the age of 14, he was placed in the second grade because he didn't know English. And they didn't put him in first grade because he was too tall. So he's in second grade, like this kid, and he was bulky. Okay, remember second grade? You're like this high? Okay, this is this. Okay, and he had to learn English. And uh, he learned English, and then he um, was drafted, and in World War One he went back, uh, and he served in France, and then he came back, and he said, I'm never going back to Europe again. And his goal, as a man who was Jewish and traditional, was to marry a Jewish woman and to raise a Jewish family, and he did. And he had three daughters, the youngest is my mom, and so my grandfather's goal in the world was to get out of a place where Jews were being attacked in the former Ukraine in the 1880s and 1890s and get to America and have a Jewish life. And he did. My parents' role was to raise Jewish kids as loyal American citizens and involved in Jewish life and in American life as citizens. And they did. And my goal, having married a Jewish woman, is the same, to live in a free society and contribute to the free society of American life and to support Jewish life and vitality and contribute to it in some way, bringing values and traditions and principles and Jewish learning into this world and in a generation thereafter when I'm dead and gone will be up to the next generation of Jews to figure out what it means to be Jewish and to bring Jewish tradition into the world but the experience in Alabama in 2023, 2033, 2053 is different than the tradition in Oklahoma in the 1840s or California in the 1910s, or Russia in the 1650s, or Israel right now, or 500 or 1,000 years ago. So it depends on where you live. It depends on how you see Jewish tradition. Um, there, there, I don't think there's a single uniform goal that all Jews are going to agree on, this is why we get up in the morning. Right. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes sense. Definitely. So, there's not going to be this, kind of through your view of what you see, there's not going to be this cosmic renewal. I mean, there might be. It'd be good. Is that at least fair? When you're reading the when reading the Hebrew scriptures, to see that, is it fair to see some kind of a cosmic renewal? Yes, as in God promising that there will be, at least he. It might not even be like a human Messiah in the some sorts, but at least he is going to interact in the world with some way. That there is going to be this renewal. See, where where do you get the idea of renewal? What does that mean, renewal? What does that renewal mean? as in 
no more sin, no more death, that we pretty much be as the garden was, where God is with us, like, literally. <laughs> like that the entire world is God's temple. Okay, so, so let's back up. What's the English word sin mean? To miss the mark. Oh, the English, I mean. English. English. To, I guess, to do something again. I think it comes from Latin. Yeah, I Which means say. without. Right. It's, it's nothingness. It's withoutness. Okay. Right. The Jewish term, which you know, is to miss the target, to miss the mark. Okay. So, the Jewish concept of, of sin is inherently optimistic. If I make a mistake, and I recognize it's a mistake in some way, and I'm mm -hmm. apart from God, then I'm going to try to be better the next time. Right. That is intrinsically optimistic. That's a hopeful tradition. Christianity doesn't have that tradition. Well, Christianity has the tradition that people have to have to identify with the the struggle and the agony and the death of Jesus to be redeemed. Well, I would say it goes a little bit more to that, as in more Scott. As a whole, like right now, world, if you ask most people, yes. However, kind of the view there is that no matter what we do, we're never going to hit the target, that we are unable, which is why we needed Jesus to, for one, cleanse us of our sins, which the English word without, without God. Okay. And we need God to then come live in us just as he lived in the temple to do what it would have been I just blanked the prophet that the verse that says I'll pretty much I'll write the Torah upon your heart the law upon your heart well it, it might be uh, maybe Jeremiah yes. it might be Ezekiel pretty much we take kind of that phrase okay. that phrasing of the I'm going to write the Torah upon your heart okay as in before just to kind of give you the context of what I'm working with here, and then you can kind of guide me through this. Okay. Of before Jesus, we were totally separated from God, except through the rituals of what God gave us in the Torah, right? In Leviticus, that, okay. you know, we know that it was radical that a person would be able to partake in the animal sacrifice and eventually through prayer like we know that middle eastern religions that didn't happen like the person couldn't even get close to any type of altar they wouldn't know the like we know like there is god was with israel however kind of our view is but he didn't live in each and every individual does that that's, make yeah so that's where we would disagree the christian hope is that the God's presence, the same one that we see in Genesis 1, because the Ruach Elohim, we picture that, that he's working right now to bringing, setting up new creation, and that each and every follower of Jesus is a mini picture of new creation. And their goal is to spread that out as far as possible. And that's why we evangelize. And then eventually, what? pretty much like, do, oh, evangelize. Yeah, evangelize. Yeah, sorry. Yes, yes, yes. That's why we like share Jesus, is okay. because we're preparing the world for Jesus to come and finish the job. Okay. So I guess when I say renewal, I'm saying that's kind of the framework I'm working with, of like, I guess what I have been told 
is that Jesus fulfills the hope. I guess no, we'll take now we'll kind of go back to the context of Judaism. That the hope was always for God to come and interact with for God to restore the world completely back to the garden. Not exactly literally, like we're not gonna be naked. Maybe, but see, you're not you're not gonna find that in Tanakh. Okay. Why what you have you have to ask why, why is that a hope? Because where, we, where do you get that idea that that's a hope? Right. So we so, so looking at if you the, look at early Genesis, sorry, yeah. they're they're out of the garden. Okay, so now what's now? You've got this population, you've got Cain, you've got Abel, you've got that, Cain kills his brother, then you've got generations that come along and they're getting more and more corrupt and they're breaking laws. God sends Noah and he builds the floating zoo and you know all that stuff and so we have time and again we have people who are so corrupt that they can't get along with each other. Right. So where do you see an indication that the thrust or momentum of the Tanakh is to get people back into the garden? Where do you see that? Well, through the promises, I mean, the lion, the lion and the lamb. So peace and unity. We saw peace and unity okay, between. Okay, okay. So that's kind of where it starts. As we okay. look at the, the garden, we're like, okay, peace, unity. Then we get the prophet. So mainly the main, I guess the language I'm using is mainly from the prophets. Okay. Like it's mainly the prophets, you know, we look at them as contemplating on the stories of the Torah and from the all of Israel, which they're living in at that moment. They're seeing the exile and they're seeing that they sit, that they go all the way back to the beginning and look at, they want that unity with God. And then they're kind of putting language to that. So I guess that's kind of where we're where I see, and then in my reading as well, of, okay, I see these promises of unity, of peace. And like we said, this is the text of Genesis wasn't literal anyways. Mm -hmm. So it was a picture of humanity and God living in full unity in that there will be a day where we accept his rule and we're not going to eat pretty much that he's going to once again be the sole ruler and king and we are not going to want to take we're not going to try we are not going to want to try to rule the world on our own terms we're going to trust god okay does that all make sense well uh hopefully i mean hopefully well, but see, you, did you, i describe that right like that I, I i guess but see depends on which Jew you talk to. So, some Jews are going to say that the role of Torah has to be supreme. Other Jews are going to say that living as a law-abiding citizen in a local country and following the norms there and bringing Jewish values into the daily life is, is the method. So... Um, it depends on which Jews you talk to and and how they see themselves. Right. If you look at Deuteronomy, the goal of Israel is to live in the land of Israel and to observe the laws. Okay. Right. Okay, so 
But they're not in the land. Okay, so that helps. So, but they're not in the land yet. Well, you're At the end you of Deuteronomy. Said, you said right now. You said right now. Right now. So no, um, but I'm going to make back? a progression here. Oh, so I'm going to make a progression here. Okay. So. But they're not in the land, correct? At the end of Deuteronomy. Right, they're not. They're not. Joshua hasn't brought them in yet. So it's unfulfilled, right? Yeah, at that moment. Okay, so then you get through Joshua, fulfilled. You go, move through that. We see kind of the, their, the downward spiral once again. Kind of like how we saw in the garden, Genesis, downward spiral. Okay. We get lift up, you know, okay. we get the progression. Right. We get to the end of the Torah. Right. The supreme of supreme. Right. The text of text. Right. And we get it's unfulfilled, right? Okay. And then we get the former prophets, which mm -hmm. is, is that the correct? Yes. yes. Okay. So, yes, you get the former Joshua, prophets. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, yep. former prophets. Yes, exactly. And right. then you get to the latter, latter prophets. prophets. Exactly. Exactly right. And you get the Malachi. Right. And it feels like. If you're just reading this as a, it's unfulfilled. Like, you get to Malachi, and it seems like there's a hope there. There is. What is it? I guess it's, that's it's what... Potential. It's potential. It's, it's up to every individual. So, to a certain extent, I mean, that's what I... And that's why I like talking about Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Malachi. As to these three very different perspectives on what it means to have a messianic redemptive view. Isaiah is global, maybe unrealistic, purely metaphorical. Ezekiel is understanding God and people working together in some way. God inspirationally and Ezekiel is saying people, people working together. And Malachi is saying, what are you doing today in your own life, in your neighborhood, in your house, with your family? Okay. It's very, very concrete. It's okay. very, it, it's concrete, but it's also reminding us that the family unit is the essential unit for making the world better. So. That's enormous. And what's the me what's the mechanism by which you get the family unit operational that parents and children will better understand each other? Okay. So. Do you fully understand your parents? No. Do they fully understand you? No. Correct. Okay. I got four grown kids. Okay. Do I love them? Beyond description. Do we understand each other? No. Am I trying to get there? Yes. Will I fully ever? No. So. So it's a future. It's a potential. But see, in a, in a way, it's it's very commonsensical or practical, reality based, or whatever you want to use, because we're all in that boat. Right. So, to answer your question. I guess I take where that hope is as, I mean, they're outside the exile, like we see it, they're out of the promised land, that promise. Well, what? Malachi, they're coming back in. Huh? Haggai, Zachariah, and Malachi, they're back in. They're back in the land. At least a small portion of the people are back yeah. in the land. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're back in. Okay, so they're right. rebuilding. Right. So, I mean, now many are still in Babylonia, which right. is now called Persia. The majority, the 60, 70, 80 percent are still in right. yeah, no, Babylonia, that Persia. Was my yeah, but they're still in 10, 20 ish, hopefully, <laughs> maybe. They're kind of back and they kind of have a semi right. sad looking temple. Right, exactly. So, so, that, so that says that the, let me use the term, the framers of the Tanakh have an agenda. Right. Okay, and so if you'll go to the, okay, right? Okay. Right. So, 
the framers of the Tanakh, when they talk about Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the framers of the Tanakh have a goal. And the goal is to get back into the Promised Land and to rebuild the Temple because that was the most important thing 50, 80, 100, 200, 500, 600, 800,000 years ago or beforehand. Right. But what the framers of the... Not but, but, okay, so... Now, on one scale, by the fact that in the, the next section of the Bible we call writings, we have Esther and Daniel and a little bit of Ezra and Nehemiah. By the fact that we have those books, especially Daniel and Esther, I think the framers of the Tanakh are talking about Jewish people are always going to live outside the land of Israel. Jewish people are, are going to live outside the land of Israel, and, and they're not fully coming back. So, how do we, as people of Jewish tradition, live our lives as Jews outside the land? Ezra and Nehemiah, those two books, which are trying to bring Jews from Babylonia, Persia, back to Judea, that's the name of the country now, or the region, are dealing with the struggle and the tension between Jews living outside of Israel and Jews that are supposed to be living in Israel. And there's a back and forth struggle, and it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be perfect. So the framers of the Tanakh have this view of trying to get back to the land, but there's a recognition that we're never going to fully get back into the land. So now we have side-by-side, side, or not even side-by-side side because they're distant, Jewish communities operationally and somewhere in Babylonia, Persia and somewhere in the Promised Land in much smaller numbers and geographic regions and they're building a second temple which is nowhere near the beauty of the first, nowhere near the significance of it, the prestige or the grandeur or the style or the elegance. Um, so you have a smaller population and a smaller temple and lower level of preeminence, you might say, and they're kind of limping along. And you've got this Jewish community that is non-temple based, living in Babylonia, Persia, in enormous numbers of population, that is assimilating and integrating non-Jewish cultural norms as their own. Mm-hmm. But these two different Jewish communities, and they're and they're may be parallel, or maybe not, but maybe they're just simultaneous, not parallel. Right. Right? So, the fact that, 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 that that's how the Tanakh ends, I think, is very significant. It's teaching that Jewish life is now going to be different. Jewish life is going to be made up of different communities, locales, locations, peoples, and they're going to be responding to different forces okay. and systems. It's not going to be all wrapped up in a in a nice little bow, and it's a present. It's all here. It's all perfect. It ain't going to happen. It's not happening ever. Ever. So, I don't think it's ever going to happen. I don't so, think it's ever going to happen. No. So what we have now is it. That's it. Life is incomplete. Okay. okay, life is incomplete. Okay, so how do I make... So, so going back to one of your first questions... That answers questions, my question. How do I make life complete? And the answer is, depending upon 
who who a Jew is. He or she may have the charisma and personality of somebody like a Martin Luther King Jr. who can get millions of people engaged in an agenda. That's not me. I'm not that kind of a guy. Okay? But maybe there's a Jewish version out there somewhere. And it'll get literally thousands, tens of thousands, millions of people operating on a common frequency. And maybe it's going to be building the, the nation of Israel as a, a free Jewish democracy. Or maybe it's going to be you know, universal health care for all people who are impoverished. Or maybe it's going to be education. Or maybe it's going to be safety. Or maybe it's going to be uh, promoting rule of law and justice across the country or across even the world, right? Who knows, right? Medical care, whatever. Okay, so, and then there are going to be Jewish people who are more like me. And what do I do in my daily life? What do I do, hopefully, over a span of my years? Do I have a vision? Do I have a goal? I'm, I'm 61. Do I have a goal for the next, <laughs> if I get it, I don't know how long I'm going to live. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, okay. Do I have a goal in my mind for the next 10 or 20 years that God gives me? That's a good question. That's a good question. That's a better question. That's a Jewish question. That is a Jewish question, sir. That's a Jewish question. Do I have a goal for my life? Okay? Because Jewish tradition is typically focused on what am I doing today? As you know, in the Tanakh, there's no mention of the world to come. There's one sentence in Daniel. It's chapter 12. Depends on which edition you're looking at. It's either verse 1 or verse 2. It's this obscure verse. And it talks about, you know, a future of either despair or maybe it's not so bad. And some people say, maybe that is an indication of a reality beyond this life. The, the term is eschatology, right? Free term, right? Okay. One sentence in this book. Right. One sentence. But if you look at the 1,800 pages of this book, what is it? okay, 2,000 pages in this book, right? Almost every page, it's you know, it's totally all about what you How are you today. connected to God, land of Israel, people of Israel, Sabbath, Jewish holidays, charitable giving, animals and people. What are you doing today? That's what the book is all about. So we've absorbed that message over these millennia. And we have a very large focus on living in the world here today which is why it took so long for me to understand the questions that you were asking earlier you know, in this little discussion of ours but but now your question I mean a takeaway for me which makes perfect sense within my Jewish mind is do I have a goal for the next 10 or 20 years of my life as a Jew that's a really good question that's a question. That's something I would meditate over. Try to figure no, out. That's, yeah, that's number a goal. two. This is a huge. Like, if I'm just thinking, there's a huge. Like, this message of Judaism speaks to actually much broader audience than Christianity ever would. But 
it would take that person to be charismatic and be able to kind of rally. But like, when I just simply take that, there's a lot more responsibility as in what I do today. Yes. But a less, for lack of better terms, messianic view. Exactly. Exactly. So it's not you have to do it you have to believe in this way in order to live this life. Correct. It is, here's the way you need to live. Correct. But, and, okay, so I guess here's my, you have to believe in that and I have to do all this. Some Jews believe in God <clears throat> in a very specific way and See, let's just and they're more, add an eye. And we'll start and, there. And they're and they're more comfortable talking about God. Some people are reluctant to talk about God. Many Jews were either spiritually or emotionally harmed by the Holocaust. One out of three of my people were destroyed just two generations ago. Right. Many Jewish people don't know how to deal with God because of the Holocaust. Right. God is supposed to protect the nation of Israel. Did God protect the nation of Israel? We can talk about the Nazis had free will, the nations of the world did nothing, there are many Christians in Europe who were complicit or supporters of Nazism we can do all that stuff and all that makes sense but on a personal or on a spiritual or on a psychological or religious level many Jewish people say God where were you and they haven't recovered from the trauma and many Jewish people don't know how to talk about God and some of them have said I don't want to talk I don't believe in God anymore so um it's it's a, a deeply personal issue. Jews talk about God or don't talk about God in many ways, privately and personally. And Jews don't talk about God the same way that Christians do. Jews are very comfortable talking about being part of the Jewish community because that's always been in our baseline since 3,800 years ago, be part of the community. Yeah. Jews talk about the land of Israel. Jews talk about living in the modern world because of the diaspora. Jews talk about righteousness and honor and, and justice and, and kindness and charitable giving and responsibilities and morality. But if you ask Jews about God, lots of people will say, that's private. So this was the end of our first conversation. However, I had more questions. So I emailed Rabbi Stephen, just asking these questions, and he graciously invited me back. So the question was that he just hopped right into answering is, do you believe in God? And if so, how does God interact in the world today? So, um, so yes, I do believe in God. Uh, absolutely believe in God, of course. Um, God is independent of the universe. God created the universe. 
I have a role to play as a member of the children of Israel. And that role is, in a way, expressed by Torah and has continued to grow and evolve because Judaism is no longer just Torah. Judaism is much more. Um, traditional Jews do not mention God's holy name. I was about to ask that. In so conversation. That's why last time I, um, right. I kept referring as Adonai. So that's why. Right. We only use that word in prayer. Okay. In actual synagogue prayer or personal private prayer. But walking down the street, I won't say I'll use the word God. Um, but we, we don't use that word because it's so very holy. And for that same reason, I don't write it. If God's name is written down, then on the piece of paper or the book that's written, that material now becomes sacred. So when we have... And just to be clear, we're talking about the tetragram, right? Yes, okay. exactly. So when we have... A prayer book that's tattered. Um, eventually, we bury it. So this right here, this is a box of, this is my bury box right here. So um, these were uh, prayer song sheets, but we don't use them anymore. So I'm not going to recycle them. I'll bury them. And if a, a prayer book comes along, and somebody brings it to me, and it's it's uh, tattered. Uh, or not, not going to use it anymore, we, we bury it. Um, somebody gave me this. Now, this doesn't have God's name uh, specifically in it, but it's a prayer. So I'm not going to throw it away. There's, we have no reason for this. We don't need this. So when it comes time, we'll go to our, we have a synagogue cemetery, and um, we'll pay to open a grave, I've got boxes in various closets in the building. And um, I've done this two other times in the past 30 years. It usually takes, you know, 10, 15 years. Accumulate boxes and boxes. And if you open a regular size grave, you can put 30 to 40 of these boxes in a grave. Right. And no cask, we just put the boxes in the grave say a prayer, put the dirt in, and we're done. <laughs> but we do uh, do this at, in our synagogue cemetery, and, and many Jewish cemeteries over hundreds or more of thousands of years have uh, been the location for burial of, of sacred texts. So if a Torah scroll itself were damaged, um, Bibles, prayer books, we put them in the in the grave. Okay, that's amazing. Yeah. So when I so when I, I I tease my kids, my Sunday school kids, I say, remember, you know, I can't write God's name on the blackboard, on the whiteboard, because then I'd have to take it off the wall and, and bury it, because I can't erase it. Right. And they laugh, so they know. So I'll write one letter, and then I'll erase. I'll say, here, the next letter is this, and I'll erase it, because mm -hmm. I'm just writing one letter. I'm erasing. Right. It's okay. But uh, they know it in the prayer book because I show them in the prayer book. Right. But not on the. I'm not gonna write it on the whiteboard. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And I won't type it in an email. 
sure. So I write abbreviations, that kind of thing. Right. right. In fact, there was an uh, back in the day. It's kind of an interesting question. Um, I'm 61. I I grew up teaching, learning, and also teaching Hebrew prayers on cassette recordings. And you record a prayer. So I could hand it to somebody and he'd play it on his cassette recorder at home or tape player at home or she and they'd learn the prayers. So the question is, do those cassettes need to be buried? Because they don't have the word of God written. Right. But they've got the sound of God. But it's not really a sound. It's magnetic bubbles that are being in interpreted by the mechanism of the tape player right so, so some people said we should bury some people said we should i would tend on the more conservative side i would bury them because i didn't want to just throw them away because i there are prayers on them so in the prayer you do say i would say that a lot say adonai right if, if i were if i were teaching a jewish person a prayer i would say it for the sake okay. of teaching the prayer right and you use where you put the a the sound of the a Right. To see, I knew there was two different versions that, some, I mean, most use the A-E as the fill-in. What's A-E? What, what? As in, the I'm trying to say the sound. So, I mean, because... Ah, uh, <laughs> and then space do, and then space nigh. Okay. So, okay, I'm sorry. I was... So you say Adonai rather than... Oh, I'll, no, oh I'll never say, oh, no, 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 no. That's my we question. We would not even, we would not even dare say that. Okay, that was my question. Oh, <clears throat> pardon me. <clears throat> pardon me. No, no traditional Jew would ever even attempt to say. Okay, that was my question. What we think the name might have sounded like. Okay, that was my question. Okay, that's what I was. That's what I thought. I just wanted to right. Confirm. That name was only said once a year, by the high priest on Yom Kippur. Only once a year, and everybody outside the temple did not hear what the high priest was saying. He was in the temple. He was inside the room, and actually, furthermore, um, all the worshippers outside would call it a phrase. Mm-hmm. Baruch Shem Kavod Machutoli Lamved, blessed be God's glorious name and holy kingship forever and ever. And they would say that at the same time, so they would block it out because they weren't allowed to even hear God's name. Right. So, no, we, we never say that. Okay. Hmm. So, in fact, when, when Christians come along and say, oh, it's Yah space Weh or, or Jeho space Va, whatever it is, I say, well, maybe but number one you don't know correct because there was no w <laughs> nope <laughs> there was a v so and number two here's the other problem <clears throat> those two words <clears throat> that have been transliterated were transliterated from a document that had vowels. Right. And in origin- originally there were no vowels. Hebrew, there was no value. <clears throat> no vowels, vowels. exactly. Yeah. So we don't know what the vowel sounds would have been right. in the time of Aaron. 
when Aaron began to say this, or his successive descendant generations. So, so in part, one part of me says that articulating Yah space or Jeho space may not be accurate, and it may even be disrespectful. <clears throat> so, and that and I'm in, I'm in very consistent company there. Most Jews agree with me there. Most Jews right. don't say that. So that's, that's a that's my understanding. I just that's to the confirm. the name has been lost to time. It is part of the reality of the days of the Bible, but no longer with us now. So and then. And then apologies, I didn't realize that. No, <laughs> you okay. didn't say I deny, by the way, so yeah. apologies there. So that's okay. in conversation, you just stick with God? We'll say God. Okay. Right. And so some people, getting back to the writing aspect, um, if you write G-O-D, there yeah, is an assertion. Do we erase that or not? <clears throat> or do we throw it away or do we recycle it or do we bury it? <clears throat> Mixed opinions. Some people write a G with a dash. I've a seen D. that. Just in my... Right. I've seen some different websites or or L dash R D. So and it could be L O dash D. I mean, but leaving one letter blank. Right. Because those are the only words in English that would intentionally be left blank. Right. I mean, you know, basket, chair, table, window, ceiling, fan. Eyeglasses. I mean, we spell out all of our words. Wristwatch, arm, computer, laptop, microphone, colored paper. You know, we spell out every single word that we have with all of our letters. Am I shouting? Sorry. No, you're good. So, um, only one word or two words, God or Lord, are so significant as to be treated differently in spelling and writing. And that shows that we take these two words very, very seriously, like no other word in the English language. Right. So in the English language, they're treated separately from all of the words in English language. And that raises the question, our tradition for centuries has been, in terms of Hebrew, if a, a prayer book gets tattered, you bury it, and you're very careful with writing God's name, does that necessitate that kind of treatment in English? And that raises an interesting issue because many Jewish people teach that the Hebrew letters, the Aleph Bet, are of a different quality, a different spiritual nature than the English letters of the English alphabet, or Spanish, or Polish, or Portuguese, or French, or German, or the Cyrillic alphabet of Russian, or whatever it might be. Greek letters, whatever they are, because they're just letters. Right. Yeah, I didn't, I've never, I haven't, in all my reading, I haven't read that. That's within that, a Jewish uh, of element yeah. of, of, of mysticism. I mean, the, the, God said, let there be light. Yehi or. And, 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 and the world changed, the universe changed. Mm -hmm. Chaos, which had been ever present and certainly was not pretty and was just, <gasps> right? became right. beautiful as a function of God's speech. Right. Which means that the Hebrew words are transformative. 
the Hebrew letters, which comprise the words, are transformative. Right. So if God transformed all reality by using Hebrew letters, then Hebrew letters have a quality unique to Hebrew. And no other language in human history has that quality, that, that specialness. Yeah, we'll say as not a Jew, but learning Hebrew, you can't help but almost, like, it feels holy. Like, yeah. every, like, learning it, like, from the alphabet. <laughs> like, from the beginning, like, I don't know what it was, but there's just this feeling of, okay, this isn't learning Spanish. <laughs> this is different. Like, this has a holy nature to it. Like, I, I couldn't explain it, but, like, I was trying to explain it about my wife, I was like, it's different learning this. Like, this is, like, like, it just blew me away of, like, it just from the first moment. It, it is. Just, so I can definitely see, you know, I can definitely attest to that, just as not a Jew, but just learning Hebrew. It is just the whole time. It is every time I open it up, and especially reading out of the Bible in mm. Hebrew, there's a holy nature to that. Definitely. That, Definitely. doesn't even compare. Definitely. So I can definitely feel that in reading and just diving into this. Cool. So What are the questions do you have? I would say, so you kind of led talking about the chaos that God's words, but so there's no doubt that God was interacting within our reality yes. throughout the entire yes. Tanakh. Just yes. In how, how, has he continued to do that, and how does he? God does things that God wants that God wills, that God asserts because God is God. I may not know what God is doing. I probably don't know what God is doing. I can. I agree with that. Yes, I'm just, I'm just a guy. A man is very limited, yes. and the older I get, the more I realize that I don't understand all kinds of things. I believe God is very present in the world. Okay. If people ask me, how come God doesn't split the sea? I don't know. God doesn't check with me and say, Steve, guess what? Today I'm going to decide, do I split the sea or not? Do I, today, do I bring manna down or not? Um, do I stop cancer or not? I, uh, I can't answer those questions. Um, so... Last week, an acquaintance of mine, a good friend of many of our friends, died of pancreatic cancer. 
God didn't do that. There's a disease that stole this woman from her family and her friends. Question is, what do you and I do when somebody gets very sick? And I believe and I know that God expects me to act in a certain way. To visit, to love, to support, to comfort, to be present, to attend, to assist a family, to assist a friend. Do you pray with that person? Oh, sure. Of okay. course. Absolutely. Sure. And... Um, I pray for healing. I pray for strength. I pray, pray for closeness. The academic question is, do I pray for a person who's terminally ill at the very end of his life? And I come up with all kinds of words and I kind of wiggle. And I speak in English so people know what I'm talking about. And I pray for love and comfort, and closeness, and presence. And when some people are ready, and this is a very long thing, it's a very hard journey, but when some people are ready, and they ask me to pray for a peaceful death, I do. Because people who are suffering with terrifying diseases and illnesses who have a relationship with God need support. Right. And their family members need support. And their friends need support. Right. And that's the purpose of God. For us to know that we are part of a grandeur that is eternal. We are connected to a reality that transcends the physical reality of our limited world. That's what God is. Yeah. And I guess that also brings up, do we get to participate in that eternal reality? In some way. Um... I think, and this is an oversimplification, the difference between Judaism and Christianity is that Judaism focuses on the here and the now, and some Jews believe in a reality beyond this world, and some Jews don't. But our focus in daily life is always here. Right. Deeds, behavior, action. What did you do today? Right. What are you doing tomorrow? What did you learn? What did you accomplish? Did you reach out to somebody? Did you learn? Did you grow? Did you forgive? Did you help? How are you helping today, yesterday, and tomorrow? Today, next week, next month, as long as you're walking around this world, what are you doing? Right. Concrete, tangible. Um, it's my limited understanding of Christianity that much of Christianity is thinking about the messianic or the next reality or redemption with, with Jesus and, you know, beyond in the, in the experience after death. Because there's an eternal life and, and so on. Yeah, sadly, and, the New Testament isn't concerned about that as much as people have made it out to be. There, there is, it's more of the 
honestly, most Christians get more of their theology from the apocryphal New Testament writings Interesting. than the New Testament itself. It is very much like, I mean, of course, I mean, there's the book of Revelation, but I mean, it's prophecy. It's what Jesus is going to do, but it's after what he, he told you to do in his first coming. Okay. Like, that's just... Okay. I mean, he says, leave it up to me. Like, he even says, don't... When he ri- rises from the dead, his disciples ask, are you now going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he goes, that's not concern. That's not your concern. Hmm. Okay. So, it's... So, yeah, there's... So, sadly, you've gotten the popular culture of Christianity, which does focus on the heaven. But, no. What we believe the story of the New Testament is... At its core is God coming to the here and the now. That it's not one day when at the second resurrection. Okay. But it's God coming to the here and now. We get to experience a tiny, tiny, tiny piece of that second resurrection in our lives. Okay. And we have the honor to spread that new life that God has breathed into us, just like He did in the in Genesis. We get to breathe that life around us because God now lives yeah. in us. Okay. So yeah, that's that's something that a lot of my writings are concerned with is trying to readjust that because the Good. there's much more Jewishness in that message than the what Platonic theory and a lot of that kind of cluttered hmm. Christian thought which made it seep into what you see Christianity at. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and so when you actually read the New Testament, you realize, okay, Jesus wasn't concerned. Paul wasn't concerned. Peter wasn't concerned after Jesus told him, don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> about the afterlife. Okay. So, so that's kind of why I asked, how does God interact with us today? Because we as believers believe, uh, believers in Jesus, believe that because of what he did, he opened the way. He removed the barrier of sin so that God could come and live in us. That he removed evil out of the way. He was the one who finally did what David couldn't do, what mm. Josiah couldn't do, what all of their failures. Mm. The failures of the, I mean, the kings are called, I mean, the David covenant says, you'll be my son, right? I mean, God mm. tells you'll be my son. So, like, all these kings are in this class of the Son of God and what we talked about last time, Mashiach. And all of them failed, eventually. Okay. And we believe that when Jesus came, he was perfect. And he was able to put actually do what they couldn't do. He didn't fall to the sin and evil that led David to kill Uriah. He didn't fall to the temptations of all the other God, the other gods and other influences. Okay. So he was able to lift that. And now God lives in us and we can spread his new life through the world. Okay. So that's more the message than, okay, hey, Jesus saved us. Now let's wait for heaven to come. Okay. That's okay. more of a true representation of the New Testament rather than. Okay. So now that was a great. So I guess next would be. I know we just talked about the here and now, but in that, though, for God to be in the here and now, there has to be a hope for the second resurrection for us. Like, not even heaven, just the second resurrection. 
as in talking about we let's talked about there one uh, verse. Yeah, but, let's see if if you, if if you look at that, that's why you have to understand Judaism and Christianity operate on two very different frequencies. So if you look at the Hebrew Bible, if you look at the Tanakh all the way through, you see almost no indication of reality beyond this one. I, I mean, you, you, I've, I have a couple. So can we... Just a few, then I got to go in a few. Okay, cool. Okay. So let's just hit on, for one, we can go with later, later, so after the Tanakh, the second of the 18 benedictions. Okay, so, well, that's, that, that's, that's talking about messianic figure. Okay. Okay. So that's Matzmech and Yeshua. Okay. God implants the descendant of David who is going to be the source of a messianic uh, authority, you might say. Okay. So. So what does it mean then? Blessed are you, O Lord, who bring the dead to life. Um, depending upon how you view it, some people might say that that comes out of the message of Ezekiel in the Valley of the Dried Bones, or rather, no, I should back up. Some people say that the message of Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of the Dried Bones plants a seed. And that seed is um, communal resurrection. What you have to understand is that Ezekiel, as we talked about last time, is talking to a beleaguered and enslaved community that has just seen the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the, of the country. So Ezekiel has a message of you see this you see all those bones that huge cemetery everybody's going to stand up again you're going to have new life he's talking to a nation that has been bulldozed and crushed right it's not spiritual it's a huge poetic dream vision hope to inspire people that the nation is going to live and grow we're not talking about something in the razzle-dazzle, right. okay? The poetry might be razzle-dazzle, but the message is for the here and the now. Right. Some people take hold of that three, four, five hundred years later and say, maybe this refers to something like a messianic redemption, which has supernatural aspects to it. Mm. Um, and that's what comes in the second blessing of the Amida. Okay. And then this way, last one. So with that, because uh, this is my main... As I've been reading, like after our last conversation, I've really kind of had a framework to work with and I've really zeroed in. It seems to me, as I read this, and it might just be because I had the hope of this large, grander, renewal, complete, so that might be why, but to you, there's no doubt that God gives these beautiful promises to Israel. Mm hmm and it feels to me that he has come short without Jesus. So as a as a Jew, how do you see God that is 
has he fulfilled those promises of the Tanakh? When you see things like when he, you'll be a blessing to the nations, to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, or the grandeur of when he's talking to David in 2 Samuel 7? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's 2 Samuel, when he's just telling David, they'll, you'll always have a king on your, like all right. these grander promises. And Israel is still today, and I mean, and then since then though, you've had the Jews decimated. Right. In things, I mean, by Rome, who were very <laughs> anti-Jew right. all the way through, all the way through the more normal Holocaust, the Holocaust. And everything else, right. So, <clears throat> so the question is this, <clears throat> and I would say this. <clears throat> My start as a Jew began with God talking to Abram and Sarai, an elderly couple with no children. What does that mean? It means that our nation has a miraculous capacity for being in the world. All the destructions that you talked about should have eradicated the Jew from the planet. We're still here. You are, yes. So that, for me, is the miracle of the covenant that is unique between God and the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel. Um, Jesus only becomes Jesus because of some Jews who want to reform what they see as a, a failed system, to use your terminology. It gets some traction. It continues. There are times during the early Roman period when Christianity is almost going to be destroyed and wiped out. And then it continues. I think it's a function of Constantine and other people later. Mm -hmm. It's also a function of the enormous evangelical tradition within Christianity. Judaism is not evangelical. Judaism is a system of and formed within the nation of Israel. We don't need to spread the message. If people want to become Jewish, well, okay, well, we'll talk about it. We'll see, we'll discuss. We'll see where you fit. Does it work for you? Is it part of the community? Yes, no, okay, we'll discuss. Um, God is present. And I see this every single day in the fact that the Jewish people are still here on the planet. There's no need to seek a secondary reality, which some people talk about as Jesus. There's no need. We live because of who we are and how we are. 
Oh, I'm going to stop there. Okay, no, that's perfect. No, that's, so, that's great. No, that okay. answered the heart of those questions. Okay, and thank thanks. you. Sure. Thank you again, Rabbi. You're welcome, Austin. Good luck with the project. Good luck with your reading and your writing and your research. Uh, thank you.